All right. So for those of you maybe that are new or maybe have not been here in a little while or whatever the case may be, or maybe you've been asleep while you've been here. I don't know. Um, But if you didn't know, we're in the middle of a series that we're going to get to um, in just a second. But we finished a series in January called Believing for More in 2024, Believing for More in 2024. And I remind us of this because I want us to keep in mind that it's not like we learned that, so now we move on. Um, All year long, this is what we're talking about. We want more presence in 2024. That means we want to learn how to better abide in Jesus. We want to be with Jesus, not just have a quiet time, not just once a day I'm I'm with Jesus or a couple times a day I'm with Jesus. I I want us all to learn what it is to be with Jesus 24-7. Like everywhere we go, connected to the vine. That's our goal for this year. More presence in 2024. More progress in 2024. We talked about those five pillars of character development. Remember, five pillars of character development. There's probably more than that. Um, But that's about being like Jesus. The reason that we spend time with Jesus or that we connect with Jesus to be with Jesus is so that we can be like Jesus. That's the whole point. And then the last one, more purpose. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the rule of life. Um, practicing the way of Jesus so that we do what Jesus did. You're going to hear that over and over. Be with Jesus, be like Jesus, do what Jesus did. That's what we're going to talk about as we go through all year. On top of that, we've been going through the church liturgical calendar. For those of you that grew up maybe Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopal, um, maybe even some veins of Baptist, did I say Lutheran yet? Uh, I don't want to leave anybody out, but, you know, if you grew up in one of those churches that was very liturgical, um, liturgical is not a bad word. It just, just because something is written out beforehand doesn't make it less spiritual than, you know, Pentecostals. Oh, we don't have a liturgy. Yeah, we do. Uh, we kind of do the same thing every week. We've got a written schedule right here. Here's our liturgy right there. See our liturgy? It's right here. And so the idea that liturgy is bad because it's pre-written, or, I mean, I've, I've heard some people read prayers that they wrote ahead of time with the help of the Holy Spirit that are way more powerful than off-the-cuff prayers. Like, it doesn't have to be, uh, it, it's not as if God all of a sudden said, hey, what should I do? Mm, okay, maybe light. I'll let there be light. Okay, now, what do you think we should do next? I mean, God is a God of order. It's not like he just in the moment does something. And we sometimes as Pentecostals think liturgy's bad. You just have to be in the moment. No, you don't. I mean, liturgy can be bad and in the moment can be bad. <laughs> like none of them are necessarily right or wrong. And so we've been trying to take us through as a church a liturgical calendar. That doesn't mean we'll always do it this way. Maybe we'll pick up new habits. I don't know. But I want us to understand where this comes from and why other churches do it. So we started with Advent, the beginning of the liturgical calendar, four weeks long, the 12 days of Christmas. Okay, And now depending on your tradition growing up, some of this may have been a part of your tradition, some of it may have been new, some you may have done, some you may have not. The Feast of Epiphany, some churches do it, some don't even pay attention to it at all. Um, Epiphany is just a day on a calendar. That's not the day I have learned that you take down your Christmas decorations because Candlemas, praise the Lord, 
40 days after Christmas, when Jesus was taken into the temple because Mary had to make a sacrifice for her uncleanness of 40 days after the birth of a male child, she took that sacrifice in. And Simeon says about Jesus, he's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That's what the Feast of Candlemas was all about. And that's on February 2nd. And that's when we take down our Christmas decorations. So for those of you that were early this year, uh, we'll try to maybe uh, watch that next year. And (laughs) I'm just kidding. Take down your Christmas decorations whenever you want. But as for me and my house, we're going to leave them up till Groundhog Day. Praise the Lord. Pray for my wife. She just loves me. But then we started with Lent. Okay, so Lent started on Ash Wednesday. Uh, Maybe you went to an Ash Wednesday service. Maybe you didn't. Um, but we didn't, we didn't set one up, but you go to Ash Wednesday service, they put ashes on your forehead in the shape of a cross. The official Lent season begins thinking about death, thinking about dying to self, thinking about giving things up as you experience what Jesus would have went through leading up to the, the crucifixion, the resurrection. We are going to work with another church in town. Uh, I'll announce that once we get the details worked out for a Monday, Thursday service, a Good Friday service, that we as a church could participate in with them to maybe experience Passover, Easter a little bit different than maybe we've ever done before. And so rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and do it ourselves, we're just going to walk alongside somebody else. So watch for that coming. Maybe you've heard of Mardi Gras. Anybody ever heard of Mardi Gras? Fat Tuesday? So the Tuesday before Lent begins, one last pagan revelry. Like, get drunk, go out and be in excess. Like, that's what the world does. Like, just go all out because tomorrow we start fasting. Whether or not that's a good idea, I think that defeats the purpose of fasting. Um, And so, yeah, like, whether or not that's a good thing, I don't know. Like, that's not a, a part of the liturgical church calendar. That's a part of the secular church calendar. And so, but the 40 days before Easter, not including Sundays, that's what Lent is all about. And as you go through the 40 days of decrease, uh, Alicia Britt Cole does a lot of teaching about where Lent came from. And if you know from day one, the first thing that we fasted was fasting Lent. Like the idea that you have to give something up. Because as if uh, I'm going to go 40 days without coffee or 40 days without chocolate or 40 days without sweets. You can go 40 days without sweets and never encounter God. And so the idea is don't just give something up, but experience the season of Lent in a whole new way. That's what the 40 days of decrease is all about. It's a different kind of hunger. It's a different kind of fast. So over the next 40 days as a community, we're going to talk about this idea of decrease and what that means. There's going to be six Sundays leading up to Easter, and we're going to dive into some of the stuff that she covers in the book. Uh, It's going to get a little confusing because the YouVersion Bible reading app because today we're on day five in the version plan because you can't skip a day, even though we're only on day four because you don't do anything on Sunday for Lent. So tomorrow's going to be day five in here and day six on the version plan. I know it's like, oh, Lord, help us. So that's why we put this little calendar together. You can pick one of those up, stick that in there. And so if you don't have a book, just get caught up today. Day four is where we are. Some of the stuff that we fasted this week, as I said, we were fasting Lent. We're fasting regret. We're going to learn to just receive new mercy. We're not going to sulk. We're not going to just feel bad. We're going we're to fast that. And that doesn't mean you only fast it one, one day. 
Okay, so like later in the week this week, I had an opportunity, something happened and I was like, oh, instantly I was like, man, if only I had learned this sooner. And instantly that came to mind and I'm like, no, I am going to celebrate today that it happened. It doesn't matter that it didn't happen back then. It happened today. And that's what I celebrate. And that's what it means. So you're adding every day. That doesn't mean you got to try to remember them all. But we're trying to add these things into our life. We're going to fast regret. We fasted collecting praise. Okay, that doesn't mean we deflect the praise. It's not like we just go, oh, no, I'm I'm not worthy of that praise. But we redirect our praise. Thank you for recognizing that. That's a sign that God's working in my life. We direct it back to Him. Okay, and so these things are the things that we're fasting. I don't know if you read Hebrews chapter 11 yesterday by candlelight, but that was the fasting of artificial light. Some of them you're going to be like, that's weird. That's okay. Just keep pressing through. And some of them I think are going to impact us in very powerful ways. But from the book, this is a quote from Alicia Brick Cole from the, from the reading this week. The purpose of Lent is not to force on us a few formal obligations, but is to soften our hearts so that it may open itself to the realities of the Spirit, to experience the hidden thirst and hunger for communion with God. See, ultimately, God is more interested in who we are becoming rather than what we are giving up. And so I hope this Lent season helps us to understand that because as human beings, we usually associate this idea of decrease with loss. So decrease is not one of our favorite things. It's not one of our favorite words. We don't like decrease. Um, We prefer increase. But ultimately, increase becomes exhausting. No matter what increases in our lives, when there's increase, there's more responsibility. Um, There's more obligation. There's more things that we have to remember. This is why we try to declutter our garages, our closets, Okay, because we're trying to embrace this idea of simplicity. And so as we walk through this idea of decrease together, think of it as like an interior simplicity movement that's trying to take place in our lives. We're trying to purge out the things that need to be purged out in our lives. I mean, why do we clean out our garages and closets? Because we have too much stuff and we got to get rid of it. Because stuff causes stress and stuff means I just got to like take care of my stuff. And so stuff, why do we try to clear things off of our schedule? Because we do too much and we try to like live a little more simply. And so as we focus on this idea of decrease and maybe uncluttering or decluttering our hearts, we're trying to remove the things that keep us from seeing Jesus clearly and the things that keep others from seeing Jesus through us. Because you and I ultimately are on this planet to, to see him. We're to, to keep our eyes on him. We're to gaze upon him all day, every day, and be a reflection of him to others, that others would see Jesus through us. And so today we're going to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to be a bit of a mentor for us today as we start talking about decrease. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was born six months before Jesus in the time of Herod. He was the miracle baby of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Because remember, they were very old. They weren't able to have children. The word of the Lord comes. They're going to have children. And Zechariah was a priest, but he wasn't just a priest, okay? Because he lived at a time when the priesthood was very corrupt. The Bible says he was a righteous priest. 
In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, it says that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees. Now, does that mean they never made a mistake? No. It just meant they set their hearts on doing all that the Lord commanded. And when they would fail, they would go and make a sacrifice. They kept the law to the best of their ability. In other words, they just kept, they were righteous in the sight of God. That's what they're, they're saying there. Then later in Luke chapter 1, we read about their miracle child, John. And John, it says, grew and became strong in spirit. I hope that would be our prayer for our kids. I mean, we hear a lot these days about kids being well-rounded and kids being, you know, learning to express themselves, but I hope that we don't lose sight of the fact that our kids need to be strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So he set himself apart in some way to be with God before he appeared publicly to Israel. And he became very popular. John the Baptist, not with everybody. I mean, the religious people didn't like him, and the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't very fond of him. Um, But John called people to repentance, and he started baptizing them. Like this idea of a ceremonial washing. A little bit different than the baptism that Jesus comes and does later, but John is what we call the forerunner of this. And so the people start seeing John, and they get excited because the people are looking for a Messiah. They're looking for what they call the Christ. The word Christ just means Messiah. Okay, It's not just a term that was applied to Jesus alone because there were other people that came claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, and there were other people that they thought, like John the Baptist, would be the Messiah. And it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and all were wondering in their hearts what John might possibly be the Messiah. So there's this anticipation. Is he the one? I mean, his message, he's calling the hearts of people to God, like this repentance of sins. He's the Messiah. He's going to set us free from Roman captivity. And then Jesus comes, and he gets baptized by John. And John, apparently in his time with the Lord, has been told, whenever you see the heavens open, the Spirit descend on someone, that's going to be the one. John knows he's not the one. He knows he's not the Messiah. And he doesn't know who the Messiah is. (laughs) until he baptizes Jesus. And the moment he baptizes Jesus, John knows he's the one. And so in John chapter 1, verse 35 and 36, it says the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and he saw Jesus passing by and says, look, the Lamb of God. That John begins to point right to Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that I've told you about that's going to baptize with the Spirit and fire. He's the one. All of the Gospels say it a little bit different, but boom, John starts pointing to Jesus. And so in John chapter 3, there's this little bit of an encounter with John's disciples. John, and that's going to be our main text for today. John chapter 3, starting in verse 23, it says, John was also baptizing at Anion near Selene because there was plenty of water. Well, that makes sense. There's plenty of water. You can baptize people. People, by the way, baptize means to submerge in water. So it's not a question of whether or not we have. If there's plenty of water, go under. If there's not plenty of water, just pour water on. I mean, it's not about the method, okay? If you're in a desert and somebody wants to get baptized, don't be like, well, we can't baptize you here. There's, all we have is this bottle of water. Dump it on their head. Make sure you just have enough to drink if you're in the desert and there's no water. So just practical thing. So people were coming and being baptized. Now this was before John was put into prison. 
an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing or baptism. Verse 26, they came to John, his disciples, and said, Rabbi, okay, John is a rabbi, has disciples, okay, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, they don't even know his name yet, they just know the man that was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, remember you called somebody the Lamb of God, he is baptizing, and everybody's going to him. I mean, is this okay? Our church is getting smaller. They're all going across the street. I mean, we should be concerned, Rabbi. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm set ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Or your translation may say he must become greater, and I must become less. So what is it that bothers us when other people are successful? Because there's something on the inside of us. I mean, I know, maybe you're one of those really spiritual people that you just are always happy with those who are happy. Like, you're never, like, there's never just a twinge of, like, that person's only successful because they cheated, or, you know, you question motives, or you question, like, their methods, or, you know. When people are successful, like, there's this uh, inside, it bothers us. I mean, only so many people can be successful. Because there's only so much money to go around. There's only so many people to go around. So it's like, if they succeed, I'm not going to be able to. Is, is what happens inside of us. It's like a missed opportunity. And so sometimes suspicion comes in or all kinds of different emotions come in. And the scripture doesn't tell us like what these apostles, these disciples of, Jesus, or of John, it doesn't tell us what's going on, but there's something going on. Okay, because they're questioning what's happening. Like it looks like, like our ministry is like becoming like less important and his is becoming better. Like what do we do with this? And so maybe it's jealousy. Maybe they're, they're like, well, you know, of course, everybody always flocks to the new church or the new ministry and it's new and exciting and so everybody wants to go there. Maybe that's what's going on inside of them. I, I, we don't know. Maybe it's an elitist mentality. Do you know what elitist means? It means we were here first. It's the reason that churches are called first assembly of God. We don't want there to be any doubt in people's minds that we were here first. And that really sounds like a judgment on anybody who has first in their name. It didn't mean to be. <laughs> but be careful. When I first came here, we were first assembly of God. And uh, I don't know why we were, that was our name, um, until one day in a business meeting, someone stood up and said, well, when we chose this name, because it started as Huron Gospel Tabernacle, by the way, that was our first name, um, they said there was talk of another Assembly of God church starting, and so we wanted everyone to know we were first. And so the moment they said that, I'm like, we are changing that name, <laughs> because that is not a good reason to choose a name. But maybe the disciples of John were entitled Maybe they were just mad at the crowds. You know, after all we did for them, they're not loyal to us. I mean, we baptized them. We got them. Like, why can't people just be loyal these days? I mean, that, that kind of happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? 
I mean, do you ever feel like some of these emotions are going on inside of us? Ah, yeah. Maybe they were offended. Maybe they were offended that this Jesus guy, that, I mean, that guy you, you pointed out on the other side of the river, like you baptized him. Man, he just used you as a stepping stone. He came into your church, and he's taking all of your people. There was a time where uh, the James River Church was just starting in town, and Jeff and Autumn Mann had moved here. And Pastor Jeff, I didn't know him, called me and said, Hey, you know, we're trying to start a church, um, but we need a place to worship for a few months as we get things started. I don't want to take your people. I don't want your people. I'm there to get people that aren't in church. But would it be okay if we worshiped with you? And I'm like, I don't know. That sounds weird. Um, and so I called some people. I'm like, do you know this guy? Like, is this okay? Is he here to steal my people? Like, what's going on? Um, well, we let him come. Did they take any of our people? I don't, I don't think so. Um, but, I mean, I'm not there on Sunday, so I don't know who's there today. But, uh, and even if they take our people, they're not my people. They're his people. And so, you know, people go. Like, whatever flavor you want to drink or eat, like, go there. So what's going on? Are they afraid? Are they afraid that if everybody goes to Jesus, that we're not going to have anybody, and then we're going to just drift off into oblivion? Like, what's going on inside of them? And this type of baggage is what all of us deal with. When other people are successful or when things aren't going the way we hope they would, all of these emotions keep us from seeing Jesus clearly, and they keep other people from being able to see Jesus through us. So let's look at John's response. John's response that starts in verse 27, if we want to throw verse 27 back up there, um, should be the next slide. A man can only receive what he's given from heaven. You hear that? A man can only receive. That almost sounds like pillar one. Do you remember pillar one for more progress? God controls our destiny. That is pillar one. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Anything we have has been given to us from God. Why are we jealous of what other people have received? Well, because that person cheated, or that person lied, or that person only is successful because of this or because of that, and so it's not fair. And As if somehow the God who stands above it all, who is holy and exalted over everything, cannot intervene and make sure that person doesn't get what they need. If you get passed over, don't blame people. Talk to him. Because he controls our destiny. Don't let your soul get cluttered with jealousy or any of these other emotions. Understand that we receive what we have from him. That's John's response. Verse 28, John goes on and he says, You yourselves testify, I said, I am not the Christ. I am sent ahead of him. John's like, from the beginning, I told you, I'm not the Messiah. But what elitism does, elitism claims that I'm the first, I'm the best, I should get my, I should get my due. I'm the one that's here every day, first thing in the morning. I'm the one that works harder. Why didn't I get that promotion? Because I am the one. I was here before that guy. Why did that guy get the promotion? I work harder than that guy. Like, do you hear the attitude that starts to develop in our hearts? and keeps us from being able to experience God. From the beginning, John says, I'm not the guy. But how many of you remember Jesus told his disciples all along, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And guess what happened when he died? We can't believe he died. I told you from the beginning. But you know what? All of us have selective hearing. Hmm. John has said clearly, I'm not the guy. And do you know what they keep hearing? I'm, 
I'm the guy. He's the guy. He's trying to be humble. He's trying just to, to like, do it sneak. Because if Rome knows he's the guy, they're gonna, he's going to get killed because the Messiah is going to overthrow Rome. So he's just pretending he's not the guy. No, I'm not the guy. Like, people, I'm not the guy. And the problem in our church world today is too many people make leaders the guy. And can we, man, leaders just fall. And when we put them on these unreachable pedestals, like there's, we've got to change the way we do this um, because it's just unrealistic. Okay. We're not the guy. He's the guy. We're pointing to someone else. And so don't have selective hearing. That's what John's saying. And then verse 29, the bride <laughs> belongs to the bridegroom. See, my job in the kingdom is just about stewarding my place. Like, don't worry about what's coming next. Don't worry about, am I going to get this job or this promotion? Am I going to go here or there? Am I going to live in a different city? Do I have to live in this city all my life? Oh, dear Lord. Do I, I mean, what steward your place? Because the thing is, if you can't steward where you are, you won't steward, steward where you think you need to be. Because once you get there, there's going to be all kinds of problems there too. I know, I think, if we could just get a different location, different situation or circumstance, steward where you are, because I belong to him. And if this is where he has me for this season, I'm going to steward it the best I can. I'm not going to let entitlement tell me that I deserve something else. I'm going to steward my place. The friend of the bridegroom waits and listens and is full of joy at his voice. It doesn't listen for the voice of other people. It listens for his voice. What's he saying? What's he saying about me? See, this is something I'll tell you that I can personally wrestle with. I've been in Huron for 26 years. I've been the lead pastor of this church for 24 years. But here's the thing. The congregation size is exactly the same as when I started 24 years ago. So am I successful? Ah, depends on how you define impact. It depends on how you define impact. I mean, I could, I don't want to toot my own horn because I'm going to redirect any praise because I promise you I've done as many things wrong as I've ever done right. Okay? But we can look at missionaries and ministers that have been sent out from our church that I've been a part of helping develop. We can look at impact in the community and other people that have been a part of our, our ministry that have moved other places and still stay in touch with us. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways to measure impact. Now, am I just making excuses? Maybe. Or am I listening for what his voice is saying? Because if I listen for other voices or if I look at the numbers, I'm always going to be chasing something. And the same is going to be true in your life, just in different ways. You cannot listen to the other voices. Now, if all the other voices are telling you there's a flaw in your character that you need to pay attention to, don't harden your heart. Listen. Okay? I'm not saying we don't listen to other voices and learn stuff, but we take those other voices there and say, do I need to hear something here? And he'll help you weed out the stuff that shouldn't have been said and help you get the stuff that you needed to hear. Okay? So then John ends it with this verse. He must increase. I must decrease. In other words, John's like, dude, why are you so offended? My whole purpose is to draw attention to Jesus. John saw decrease as holy. 
as what his calling was. Again, a quote from the reading this week, John's longing was to draw his generation's attention and allegiance to the Messiah. From John's perspective, the true value of people seeing him was that people would then be positioned to see through him and gaze at Jesus. By willingly decreasing, John increased others' view of the Savior. Now, I, I know that all of us need affirmation. Like, especially if your love language is affirmation, I know we need it. And we ought to give it. We, we ought to see people doing things well and praise them for it, thank them for it. Um, but if your gift is affirmation, please make sure that when you get it, you redirect it. Because if you need it, you're never going to get enough. Does that make sense? Like you're, you're always going to be looking for, man, no one said I did a good sermon today. Maybe it wasn't a good sermon today. I don't know. Is it, was it a bad sermon? Did anybody think? So then I'll just fish for you. Like, hey, what did you think of the sermon today? Did you think it was good? Did you think it was bad? Did I say anything wrong? Like, you can't live in that cycle of looking for your affirmation outside of that voice. And so John's like, I want people to see Jesus through me. And so John, he sounds like a great guy. I mean, we're like, oh, wow, John, he's great. But let's look, last scripture, let's look at the end of John's life, okay? Because John now has been arrested and he's in prison. And Matthew chapter 11 gives us this little bit of a story. John is in prison and he's hearing about the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah. I love it that he doesn't hear about the deeds of Jesus. Same guy, but he... The writer, Matthew's telling us he's hearing about the Messiah's deeds, okay? He sent word by his disciples to Jesus, and he says, Are you the one? Wait a minute, John. Didn't you say, look, the Lamb of God? Didn't the, the promise say that when you see the Spirit? What? Huh? Like, why, why are you asking now? Are you the one? And so Jesus, cousin Jesus, who owes everything to John, his forerunner, you would think would at least give him a straight answer. That's not the way rabbis work. And Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Well, what is it? Verse 5. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And, and by the way, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So what Jesus has done, um, ultimately, you and I don't know what prompted John's question. Jesus and John are the only two that know. We understand from Jesus' response that John is going through some kind of uncertainty. So what Jesus does is he points to messianic passages from the Old Testament. He's like, John, you know the, you know the Scripture. Like, look at what I'm doing. But the problem that John is seeing is John's expectations of the Messiah are different than what Jesus is doing. Yeah, like the Messiah is supposed to do these things, but what about setting us free from Rome? This is what John wants to know because John's been imprisoned by Rome and John knows he's going to get executed by Rome. And hey, by the way, I was your forerunner. By the way, I've been faithful, and here I sit in this prison. When are you going to do what you need to do? Like there's some, and it could, it could be coming from disappointment. It could be coming from depression and despair, or it could be coming from a place of frustration. Dude, you're the Messiah. Rome is in the way. Let's get to it. I mean, 
I'm sorry, John is full of chutzpah. So I don't imagine John sitting in a prison sulking. Could be. I imagine John sitting in a prison saying, come on, Jesus, get to it. I know you're the one. Come on, let's go. So he doesn't ask, are you the one? I, I have doubts. He's like, are you the one or not? Let's go. Wow, that's a weird way to read that, isn't it? That's what I think's happening. Could be wrong. Some scholars think John was disappointed, disillusioned. I don't know. We don't know. But we do know Jesus is not meeting John's expectations. One way or another, he wants some certainty. We want certainty, don't we? Like our culture thrives on, I want certainty. I need the answers. Like you got to tell me, like, I need to know in every situation, in every circumstance, what's the right answer, the right response. I've got to know. I want clarity. Can I tell you something? Faith is not certainty. Faith is trust. And if you are going to look for Jesus to be everything you expect him to be, you will be severely disappointed. Because at times, things are not going to go the way you expect. And you are going to be certain that the Bible says this. And something is going to go on in life, and you're going to be like, whoa. And in that moment, just like Jesus with his disciples, when he turned to them, when the crowd was leaving because he didn't meet their expectations, he says, do you want to go too? And Peter's like, well, yeah, <laughs> but where would we go? Because we believe you have the words of life. Like, we trust you are who you're the guy. We trust that. But we're not going to lie. Our expectations here are having some problems. And in that moment, you and I have to ask ourselves, are we going to trust him and shift our expectations? Or are we just going to deny reality? Well, that's not the reality. Well, yeah, it is the reality. Or are we going to deny God? Well, then maybe he isn't who he said he is. Or maybe you misinterpreted who he said he was. And maybe you're in one of these John Dark Night of the Souls, and you have to just keep leaning into trust. Where in that moment, you can just declare, because you can offer in, in a moment when everything doesn't make sense, and you feel like God has let you down, you can offer something, a sacrifice of praise, Hebrews says, that you can't offer at any other time in your life. And that's, God, I trust you. You're not meeting my expectation, so help me shift my expectation to where it needs to be. And maybe your expectation's in the right place, it's just not the right timing. Or maybe your expectation needs to shift. That's what we need to look at. That's what John teaches us. And so here we are, the end of this first week, we've read through four days of the days of decrease, shared with you a little bit about John's life. And I'm going to put some questions up on the screen. And I'm going to give us five minutes. I know, look at this, 1115. I'm going to give you five minutes just to sit in this room with these questions, and I want you to process them. Maybe they're not all of them. Maybe there's one question that's really going to resonate with you, and you just need to process that one question. Maybe you need to process all of them. I don't know. But here's, here they are. They're going to stay on the screen for the next five minutes, and then at the end of that, Thaddeus is going to come, and he's going to close us up. But in a normal day, what kind of clutter most often weighs your heart down? 
Holy Spirit, help me with this one. What kind of clutter? We talked about jealousy, offense. Maybe it's busy. Maybe it's not even one we covered. Maybe it's just busyness. What kind of clutter? Number two, have you ever helped someone who eventually surpassed you? How did that make you feel? Did others get offended for you? Like, process that. I know we might open wounds over the next 40 days, but can I tell you, that's a good thing. I don't have time to tell you today, but I opened a wound I didn't even know was there this week, um, which led to my regret. Um, But man, that baby healed, uh, and it was just mind-blowing to me. And by the way, I've become convinced this week, we talk a lot about the algorithms of Facebook, um, and I know they're out there and I know they're bad, but never discount the fact that the Holy Spirit can be involved in your algorithm. Yeah, it's so good. Anyway, number three, has the distance between what you thought Jesus would do and what actually happened caused anxiety or frustration for you? Are you in one of these imprisoned moments where you just expected this and Jesus is not coming through? Are you looking for certainty or are you leaning into trust? And the last one, as you begin your 40-day journey, in what ways do you hope that a less cluttered soul might affect those near you? This is an important one. Because this isn't all about just soul searching and, you know, woe is me, I'm a terrible person. It's about getting the clutter out so people can see Jesus through me. Like, that's the call of the kingdom. And so you've got to set that in front of you too. Like, man, if I can get this clutter out, people will see Jesus in a whole new way. Set that hope before you. That's what Jesus did. How did he endure the cross? (laughs) For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's the Lenten season. So for the hope set before us that people are going to be able to see Jesus through me in a whole new way, man, I can endure this season of Lent. So let's do that. Five minutes, sit with those things. 